Welcome to the More to the Story podcast. I'm so glad that you have come along, and this is going to be a really helpful episode today because I have a reoccurring guest, David Schreiner, who was on about a year and a half ago, and we talked about the idea of genocide in the Old Testament. That you look at the Hebrew word haram, devoted destruction, devote to destruction, and that was a really helpful conversation for me. And I had many people reach out to me saying how much they appreciated it. So I'm looking forward to this conversation, which is different today, but I think you'll find it helpful. This podcast is brought to you by Wesley Biblical Seminary, where we are developing trusted leaders for faithful churches. And we do that through a variety of programs. We have undergraduate, graduate, and doctoral programs. Uh, Wesley Institute, which starts just after Labor Day, where we walk through every book of the Bible, trying to help lay leaders kind of get seminary education, get kind of put their toe in the water, so to speak. And also we have a second group of Wesley Institute, a second group for Wesley Institute called Wesley Institute Two, which is a theology track where we look at church history and theological topics as well. So you can find more about that at wbs.edu. Also, I want to make sure you guys know that I have this free resource for folks who are interested, ministry leaders, people who are Sunday school teachers, pastors. It's called Five Steps to Deeper Teaching and Preaching. It's an exegetical tool that uses the inductive Bible study method with an aim of thinking creatively about how to present to your congregation along the way. So it's kind of like IBS with a little bit of homiletics in it as well. So that's available if you sign up for my email list at andymillerthe3rd.com. That's andymillerii.com. Also, Bill Roberts sponsors this podcast. He is a financial planner who comes at it from a Christian perspective. He really helps people think about their retirement and you know set goals and get to those goals. So you can find out more about him at williamhroberts.com, and you can find a link to him in my show notes. Finally, if you are looking for a small group resource, I have two new studies that are available on my website. One is a study, a video-based study on the book of Jude, and another one on heaven. It's called A Biblical Journey Beyond This World. And so we look at a biblical view of heaven, and there's one episode on hell. So you can find that at my website in addition to my um, uh, book that just came out, Contender. All right, I'm welcoming in my friend, the Associate Dean of Wesley <laughs> Biblical Seminary and Professor of Old Testament, Dr. David Schreiner. Dave, welcome to the podcast. Hey, how you doing, Andy? Good to be back here. So you are an associate, so you have you yes. have given the world this great privilege of associating yourself with me. So thank you yes. for associating again on this podcast. <laughs> yes, absolutely. I thank God for that every single day. Oh, isn't that great? So we might, I might get in trouble here because I might get too relaxed on this podcast. But we had Dave, we had you on um, a year and a half ago talking about Haram and uh, genocide in the Old Testament. Uh, just give give people a little sense of who you are, uh, what you do, your family, that sort of thing. Just a little short, little bit, so people can know who Dave Schreiner is. Yeah, so uh, I've been working with Wesley in various capacities since I was a PhD student in 2011. I was an adjunct first for many years, and then I. Came on part-time and then came on full-time. Uh, I, I teach Old Testament, and then I'm also uh, the associate dean, so I help Andy out with the administrative things, accreditation things in particular. Um, but I do a lot of um, – I do my, – my, my area of specialty – my area of specialty is really um, Old Testament studies and, in particular, historical uh, – uh, historical and cultural studies uh, when it comes to Iron Age Israel. So um, think uh, First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings, 
um, and that sort of stuff. I, I, I dabble a little bit in the profits because a lot of them are also in that same time period. Um, I've, I've, I've written a little bit on that, but not a ton. I do vast majority of my work now. I, a lot of my research right now is focusing on the period of first and second Kings. So, um, right in there, uh, the Assyrian period divided United monarchy and that sort of stuff. So. Awesome. And you do, um, as a result of like looking in that period, you also focus on archaeology, right? You're right, gonna, right, right. That. Yeah. So I, so I, 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 I talk about the, you know, basically how does archaeology in, interact and intersect with biblical studies, and how can we use it properly as as a discipline? Um, because there's a um, lengthy and complicated history between biblical studies and um, uh, the use of archaeology uh, throughout throughout the history of scholarship, and it, it at times it hasn't been the greatest, um, and so we've gone through. Um, I, I, I can I can honestly say that we're probably doing things a lot better than we used to, uh, but there was a period uh, within recent memory where we just weren't doing very good uh, with it and uh, caused a lot of problems and build up some straw men and those types of things. So, yeah. And I, I did ask a question about your family. Tell us oh, about the Shriner yes. women. The Shriner. Yes, the Shriner women. That is that is that is correct. Uh, I'm married to Jenny. Uh, Jenny and I went to university together at Indiana Wesleyan University. We got married in 2006. Uh, we have three daughters, so I am in a house full of women. Um, and as you can tell in the background, my office doubles as my kids' art room. So if I pan to the right here, you can see like a cluttered corner that has a lot of art uh, art stuff. That's yeah. So that's where they do all their artwork. Um, but yes, yeah, so there. My my oldest daughter's twelve. Uh, she's in seventh grade, and then we have a nine year old who's in fourth grade, and then round and out is Lily. So Maddie's our oldest, Bailey's our middle, and then Lily's our youngest, and she's a four year old. And she's in preschool. Awesome. Well, I want to tell you a story about uh, two weeks ago, I was at a choir practice at my church and um, the choir director found out about my book, Contender, on the, just a study on the book of Jude and recommended it to everybody and said how proud they were. And then they, they mentioned um, that Matt Ayers, our, the president of Wesley Biblical, has a book out on the Holy Spirit. And then they mentioned Matt Friedemann has a book out on good works that he's done with Tom McCall and Caleb Friedemann. Right. And uh, then they said, they said this interesting moment came the choir like, man, they thanks so much to WBS for all the resources for the church. This is awesome. Do you, uh, is there anything else? Did we forget anything? I said, Oh yes. You know what you forgot? You forgot about me. Ahab's yeah. house of horrors. <laughs> and everybody yeah, is just right. like, they die laughing. They're like, what are you talking about? Are you serious? And yeah. I said, Oh, oh, it's that's not it. We have a faculty member who not only has Ahab's house of horrors, but also silhouettes of scripture. That's a little bit more power. Yeah. I'm holding them up on camera. So Dave Schreiner has been publishing like crazy. And it's a beautiful thing to for uh, associate dean to come through with all these good resources. So um, Ahab's house of horrors comes in the context uh, for, is published by Lexham Press, silhouettes of scripture by um uh, Lexington Press. So these are good academic publishers. You know, and, and, and this is in a way like part of what how you're trying to influence the, the wider scholarly conversation, but it has a real deep impact. So I'm I'm interested in and also to, to mention your co-authors, both these books yes. were projects. So right. Tell us who else was right. involved. I don't want to just make it just yours. Yeah, yeah, and that's true. I need to give a shout out to to, to Kyle and Drew. Um, it, and yes, Ahab's House of Horrors is not a comic book. I know the title. People are like, "Wait, <laughs> did you write a graphic novel?" No, it's not a comic book. 
Um, and that's a, it's a funny story how that title came to be in and of itself. But uh, I wrote that book, Ahab's House of Horrors, with a friend of mine, uh, Kyle Kyle uh, uh, Greenwood. Uh, he is a fellow uh, alum of Asbury Theological Seminary, and we struck up a conversation a few years back at a at an annual SBL conference, uh, and um, we gave papers in the same session. And our our interests aligned, uh, and we you know one thing led to another. And um, he told me about a project he was interested in. And I said, well, here's your method that you need to use. And he said, I don't have time to write it. I said, well, um, let me slap my name on it as a co-author and we'll write it together. And uh, so that's what it was. Uh, that's a um, that's a book. It's a singular argument that deals with a historic. It, it, it's grounded in a historical problem that um, a lot of people point to around the Omri dynasty. And um, the subtitle says it all, really, in that book, and that's a historiographic study of the military campaigns of the House of Henry. So essentially, that argument is studying the manner of the historical presentation, the way the history is presented and what is trying to be communicated through that particular presentation. So um, Kyle and I uh, teamed up on that one. The other one I, I, uh, I wrote with uh, a, a silhouettes of scripture um, that was written with Drew Holland. Um, Drew is... Uh, he teaches at um, University of Tennessee Southern, and um, he's an ordained uh, Methodist. I don't think he switched to the GMC, but he was ordained in the United Methodist Church for for years. Um, but he um, uh, teaches at University of Tennessee Southern, and uh, that also started at a. It wasn't an annual meeting for the SBL, but it was a regional meeting, and he and I both gave papers in the same session. And I just said, I, you know, he, he and I have the same interests and we do a lot of the same similar things. And we said, and I just said, you know, we should write a book together. And um, so that's what it was. It, uh, it, uh, uh, the second one though, the one silhouettes of scripture with that I wrote with Drew is a bunch of individual essays. So he wrote okay, okay. about half of them. I wrote about half of them. And what we do is we do a comparative analysis on individual sections of text um, uh, in the old Testament. And that's not just, that's not just focused on Kings that that touches on a lot of different parts of the old Testament. So drew wrote an essay on the creation narratives in conjunction with, um, uh, uh the Enuma Elish and some uh, Egyptian uh, creation texts. And, you know, I wrote a chapter on, uh, Moses's birth narrative, uh, and the similarities that it has with the uh, Sargon narrative and those types of things. That's a little bit more of a technical study, um, yeah. technical biblical studies. So, um, they're 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 similar yeah. in some ways, but they're also very different in other ways. Yeah, I want to get into both of them here in a little bit. And just to mention about Drew Holland, I had um there was a, a guy, a well known kind of Twitter person, Anthony Bradley, who um throws yeah. out this throws out this uh, <laughs> annual type of challenge. He's like gonna give people fifty dollars because he thinks it's impossible that there's nobody who went to an evangelical seminary for a PhD who teaches at a state school. Mm -hmm. And uh, last year, I'm like, look, there, there's several, but I know one, and I've met Drew. I've been around Drew a little bit. And so there he is, went to an evangelical seminary for his PhD and teaches at a state school. So I'm Anthony Bradley, if you're listening, I want my $50. That's yeah, that's true. Wondering. That's true. I remember I'll, that. I'll split it with Drew. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay. So, but I'll, I mean, I make that as a point that there, there, there's a critique about um, about some schools and seminaries as if they're only training people to do, Dave, what we're doing. And that's, right. you know, you and I are a part of developing leaders for right. the church. Like that's, right. that's a task of Wesley Biblical Seminary. But the, our school also, and Wesley Biblical, other, other places, we are also training scholars. It's kind of like 
it comes with the game. As right. we're serving church leaders, we find people with academic gifts that we're able to encourage to move along. I know that's been a part of your ministry too. Like, I'm, I'm sure, let's just talk about this for a second, Dave, like seminary education. Mm-hmm. Like there's part of it that is training another group of scholars. But at the same time, we know the main task, like the bulk of who we right. serve are people trained to be pastors. You want to comment on that? No, I think that's exactly right. I mean, it's about empowerment. It's about empowerment of, of the local congregations, uh, not just lay people, but uh, not not just the, the the pastors, but also the lay people that are also in, in, yeah. in various types of leadership positions. And, you know, that's the way that I go into uh, the, the That's the way that I understand my service, particularly at WBS, um, is that um, uh, I, 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 I push my students to be, to, to, to develop new skills. And it really is about empowerment. It's about empowerment to handle scripture properly, to study it correctly, uh, but then also to disseminate that and those skills as well to the, to their congregation, because it's not just, I mean, there is the idea that we, we train these leaders, but then there's also the expectations. And, and, I, and I tell my students this too, that they then go back to their congregations and then empower their congregations and the people in the pews to do similar and same things. Look, I mean, it's not like we're producing, you know, magical formulas and we're, we're, we're teaching people how to do magic tricks that, you know, only a few people can do. No, these are skill sets that anybody can develop. I mean, it takes yeah. a commitment to understand things properly, a devotion to the, to, to, to God almighty and, and, and a seeking of the Holy spirit to help facilitate the process. But these are skills that anyone can master and to develop. Um, and, and yeah, so we, I take that seriously. I know you take that seriously. Um, but no, it is very much a ministry of empowerment more than anything else. Yeah. I love it. And you know, you and I both had people who did that for us. And so it's a beautiful thing to turn around and offer other people. That's why you write a book called Ahab's house of horrors. That's right. That's right. That's (laughs) right. Let's just say the subtitle is really interesting to me. And some people, I, I, I work in history, not in biblical history. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Um, academically, but I, I use this word regularly, but some people might not know what you mean by saying it's a historiographic study of a military campaign. Right. So what do you mean by hi- historiographic? Yeah, that's that's a good question. It's It essentially means the method of history writing. So you're looking at the historical presentation. Um, you know, I, a lot of times historiography and history are used synonymously and yes. I think in certain instances, it's important to know the distinction and notice the difference and, and realize the difference. And and, and, and when, when the distinction is important, um, like this book was, when we say historiography, we're really looking at the method in which the history is presented, the historiographic presentation. Um, look, history writing involves it, it, it can be defined in many ways, and many people def- define it in a lot of different ways. But the way I define it is history writing is essentially the combination of two things, two intentions, two pursuits. You want to get at what happened. You want to know what happened. Yeah. And you want to know what happened accurately. So you're not like making things up. You want to know what happened, but then you also un- want to understand why it's important. So there's an intention behind it. I am pursuing this historical question. I am seeking this historical answer because I believe that it's important in manner X, Y, or Z. And um, that's kind of the stuff that I engage in. So when I look at first and second Kings, while reconstructing the history of first and second Kings is great and it's fascinating, that's not the sole goal of why I do what I do. Mm -hmm. I also want to know why 
these particular events and these particular experiences are important. So you get an intention behind it. And that's where studying the method of history writing is so important. You're finding out what happened, but you're also figuring out why it's important. And that's essentially what that, that book is about. It's looking at the presentation of the Omride Wars in order to figure out what's the message behind it. Because you don't have to be a biblical genius to realize that Ahab and his family, the Omride family, are villainized in the Old Testament. I mean, there's there's virtually nothing good said about them in the pages of Scripture. This is Ahab. He's the guy that's that um, Ahab and that's Jezebel. Married to, give us, yeah, give us yeah, the, quote, kind of like basic, like you know, going up against Elijah. But yeah, let's ha- how, right. Talk about Amri. You say Amri. I've said when I read the Bible, I say Amri. So tell me, is it better Amri? Right. No, Amri is kind of the descriptive term. So okay. the name is Amri. So Ahab's father was Amri. He was a he was a general that came to power at a moment of political turmoil in the north. So okay. the United Kingdom has dissolved. There's the Northern Kingdom and there's the Southern Kingdom. And for the first few decades of the Northern Kingdom, everybody's killing everybody off, and and it's just it's a hot mess. And and it really was a mess down south in Judah as well. Well, in comes a general named Omri, and, and he's a bit of a mysterious character. There's been a lot of discussion on whether his name is Phoenician or non-Israelite. And so was he really Israelite? I don't think really that's too important at this point. But he's a general, and he comes and he solidifies everything. So he 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 kills off all of his, his, um, his rivals, and he settles everything. So he comes in and gets rid of all the riffraff and begins to settle things, and he establishes this dynasty, this ruling family that really does settle the region. And it goes from being a hot mess, politically speaking, to being something stable and where resources can be developed and trade can be worked in, in that sort of stuff. Well, he has a son named Ahab and everybody knows Ahab. Ahab's married right, to Queen right. Jezebel. Ahab fa- faces off against Elijah um, and on Mount Carmel. And, you know, you have the uh, Nabus Vineyard episode in first Kings chapter 21 where, right. you know, then that's the story where Jezebel looks at her husband and says, you're acting like a baby. If you want this vineyard, just go take it. And, you know, just don't worry about it. You're the king. Um, so it's he's he's villainized. Ahab's yes. villainized. Um, and then we have uh, his son. And then there's there's an interesting conversation about the next person as well. So but anyway, the Amri dynasty is a, is, a, is basically four kings. OK, that rule for an extended period of time. And they're responsible for stabilizing the region, but also being extremely problematic from a biblical standpoint. Um, so that's so we wanted to look at the way their wars were presented because there's oftentimes a historical problem. And here's here's where the fun okay, stuff really. This is interesting. You, yeah. So from the biblical perspective, there's nothing good about Omri and his family. Nothing. Okay. However, if you if you just shift focus and begin to look from uh, outside of the Bible. And let's say you look at the Assyrian records and you look at some of the other non-biblical records from that from that time period, particularly um, the Kirk monolith that recounts a uh, conflict called the Battle of Karkar. So which was Kirk the Ass- monolith is a is an inscription document that it's an inscription. It's, it's a okay, big it's a it's a big stone monument that has Shalmaneser the third's military records written on it. OK, okay? and in one of in one of those places. He mentions the Battle of Karkar, and okay. he mentions facing off of against a Syro-Palestinian coalition. And one this of the names sounds in, a bit like Star Wars. I just want to say it is. Battle it of does. Okay. Yes, exactly. Um, you all you knew is all you need is an Admiral Akbar that yells, <laughs> "It's a trap." Um, but uh, one of the names, one of the names that he mentions is um, Ahab, King okay. Ahab, and he mentions. 
the size of the army that he contributes to the coalition. And it's if it's not the biggest, it's one of the biggest. So we know that Ahab, from an Assyrian standpoint, can marshal a massive military might. He has massive military resources. We also know from some receipt inscriptions that we have called the Samaria Ostraca. No, wait, no, not the Samaria Ostraca. Um, that's later on. Um, but some other records from non-biblical sources, the, the Ahab and his family are presented in a very positive way. They are recognized as basically the founders of the Northern Kingdom. They are recognized as one of the mighty players in the region. They are recognized as the entity that solidifies all the socio-political turmoil. It's a very positive picture. Wow. So this is this is so this is the conundrum that we have from a historical standpoint. Were the Omrides good or were they bad? Because the Bible tells us they're bad, but everything else that we have that's outside the Bible tells us they were good. And they did a lot for the region and they held massive influence on the region. Okay. Wow. So there's a tension that's produced. And many times people will say, well, there's something that's got to give. Who's right? Is it team Bible or is it team Assyrian inscriptions? Yeah. And so that's getting at the historical problem. There's also a literary problem where these Omride wars are presented in a way where the name Ahab is relegated. It occurs very, very few times. It's just mm. king of Israel, king of Israel, king of Israel. And in the presentation of those wars, Ahab's supposed Ahab's military might is subordinate to everyone else. It's oftentimes understood to be presented as inferior. So this is exactly not what we have in the Assyrian records. The Bible says Ahab's bad, his family's bad, and they also present him as being militarily inferior to all of his neighbors. Interesting. And the Assyrians are saying, no, that's not the case. He was extremely resourceful. He, he could marshal a huge military force, and he was extremely powerful and well-respected and well-liked. So again, this is the problem. What do you have going on here? What's going on with the biblical presentation? Is the biblical presentation fabricating things? Hmm. Is it making stuff up because we don't like Ahab? We don't like Ahab so much that we're going to alter the historical reality surrounding him and present him as an inferior person because we don't like him. Mm, mm. So we took that was the question that we took wow. head on because we were like, no, 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 we can't. No, no, no. This there's there's something else going on here. We can't just say, well, it's one or the other. And we're not going to we're not going to we're not going to go with the Bible because the Bible is the theological document. And it's obviously skewed because they didn't like Ahab. We're like, no. So Kyle and I were just like, no, that's not good enough. Okay, this is And awesome. so we, we took that on. I love that you get this question. And I want to encourage people as you're kind of developing and thinking through ideas, when you when you come to things, like often like a, in the context and I've served in a local church, people will bring up a question that they get when they're just reading the Bible or thinking right. about ideas as a whole. And I'm like, well, that's a really good question. Like I need to, and, mm -hmm. and this, and like when you come in the conflict with challenges, hold on to these questions. Um, right. That's in part what led to my, my work on Jude was like, I'm, I'm just trying to figure out like what on earth does it mean to slander angels, you know, to abuse angels. And so like that kind of helped me work. So embrace the questions. Like now David just presented us with a problem you know, a real significant challenge, like how we associate these texts. Now I want to take, a, I want to come back to your answer that you guys right. developed, you and Kyle did, but let me pause here because we've been having some conversations about the biblical doctrine of inerrancy lately right. here at Wesley Biblical Seminary because other conversations are coming in. And a lot of times the assumption is that 
people like us in this tradition are uninterested in everything you just said. <laughs> okay. Mm -hmm. Like uninterested in looking at history. This is just some perfect document. We don't need to think right. about any of these other details, but what, you know, you're a part of this institution that affirms this idea that the Bible is true and all that it affirms. And as we kind of think about these realities, what what I see happening here, Dave, is exactly what I tried to say in that podcast from about four weeks ago, was that the, the, the doctrine of inerrancy actually pushes us to think about our interpretive uh, our interpretive moves. Like, to, yeah, and, and, and it's pushing you in this case to say, how can these come together now? Right. Now, on some sides, it could lead people to say, no, you know what this means? I look at this data that Dave's just presented this historical reality and say the Bible's just wrong. OK, right. Bible obviously doesn't get it. So how do we how do we kind of think about I'm, and I'm sorry for not get, like hopefully I'm not jumping the gun too much here, but like no, how do fine. we actually think about um, inerrancy? And the truthful the truthfulness of scripture, the authority of scripture when we're dealing with these type of questions. Well, I think the key is is to understand the type of literature and understand its its rules, essentially. I mean, we're dealing with whether it's Kings or whether it's Isaiah or whether it's the epistle to James or, or whether it's the Gospels. We're dealing with ancient pieces of literature that are functioning along certain lines that in many instances are foreign to us as moderns. There are rules that are governing these types of literature that are just at times they're just it, they're they're awkward. They're awkward for us. And so when it comes to these historical texts, one of the first things that we have to recognize is are, are the rules by which these historical texts are are functioning. Mm -hmm. And the the hard part and what the difficult thing to kind of get get over is is their canons or their rules that are governing the way these types of literature function. They're just different. Yeah. We think of history, I mean, we have modern history. They had history writing back then. So we think, okay, one-to-one -one correspondence. Well, no, it's not because the rules were different. They had different criteria that they would accept as an explanation. We as modern historical, we as modern historians, we like, we like data-based facts. We like, you know, causation and that sort of thing. That just, Th that was present, they would point to causes and those types of things. But they would also look to other things like a, uh, a um, an explanation from from God Almighty, like this happened because God willed it to happen. In modern historical conversations that 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 won't get you into the room. But that those are the types of things that they invoked and they accepted and they used in 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 the context of of those things. So uh, in the in the context of those writings. So we have to first understand the rules that are governing these 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 texts. Yes, yes, yes. And and because inerrancy has to involve a conversation about literary convention. For yes. instance, you know, we we heard it just the other day that the term inerrancy has to consider the perceptions of the original audience. Like if, if, if they saw it as a legitimate facet or a legitimate canon or a legitimate mechanism, like that has to be a part of the conversation of what the Bible as inerrant means. So I encourage my students that this conversation shouldn't be dictated by modern philosophical concepts. It needs to have at a base consideration, uh, at the base, a consideration of the literary conventions that were operating during this day. And this is the good, I mean, the Chicago statement on inerrancy is long and it's qualified 
and it's verbose at times. And, and in many instances, it frustrates me because it can't be just a concise statement. But you have to applaud them for what they're trying to do in that statement. And right. that is provide the necessary qualification clarification on the literary conventions and how those things have to be a part of the conversation on inerrancy. And that's essentially what this work is that Kyle and I put forth. We looked at the mechanisms and the way history writing functioned to say, all right, let's look at it as a piece of his, ancient history writing and figure out if we really do have to just deal with this tension that doesn't seem, doesn't seem to be able to be recon reconciled. Right, right. And as, as you guys have already know, and we kind of tipped our hand a little bit, we weren't satisfied with that answer. We found a different answer and we found a more satisfying answer that explained a lot and then also clarified why the biblical historian was writing the way that they did. Okay. Thanks for leading me back into that. I think this is so helpful because so often, like, I just want to go back to, I'm sorry, the inerrancy piece is just at the top of my mind right now as, as we're thinking about rather or not the Bible represents divine revelation, all of it. And like the God has revealed himself to us in these with, with all of scripture, the scriptures, the old and new Testament are given by inspiration of God. So if that's, and, and it's like, it's only through them that we can understand the way that we function. It's the primary way that we think about God's reality of entering into the world for its salvation. Okay. If that's the case, like the qualification piece, this is why we talk. <laughs> <laughs> this yes. is why this is why not just why we why we in a seminary context educate ministers and future scholars it, certainly that's the case but this is why uh, we preach sermons is because right. we we think it's worth it that God's clear revelation demands that we try to communicate it well and I think that that's exactly what you are doing in this text like okay there's these things that are happening. It's going to take some qualifications for us to say this. Right. We think this is consistent with God's truthfulness and the way he's communicated in space and time. Yeah, as as Dr. Blakemore said, in what world do you not, it, you know, in what context nowadays do you not have to qualify yourself? I mean, qualifications okay. about just, I mean, that's, that's, a, that's a fundamental part of existence, it seems. So, yeah, I mean, we are qualifying what's going on in here. We're explaining what's going on because we were not satisfied with the, Yes. The 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 popular presentation of, well, you either have to accept the extra biblical records as true or you accept the biblical records as true. And whichever one, whichever one you choose. Right. The the your antagonists are going to be right there propping up the thing that you rejected to say, well, what do you do about this? And yeah. and so we we just we we thought that that was we thought that there was a better explanation for what was going on. And that's what we try to argue in the book. So give me give me the short version. If you want the full answer, yeah. buy their book, Lexham Press. And it's not that long. It's okay. not that long. Really, it's not. It's it's only like 130 some pages. So 140 pages. So it's not that long. Um, no, we keyed in on this animization. That okay. is, and I and I mentioned this earlier. So if you look at First Kings chapter 20, First Kings chapter 22, and Second Kings chapter three, that's where these Omride wars are presented. That's where members of the Omride family, the royal members of the Omride family, are going off and engaging in battle against their, their foes in a variety of different contexts. There's a literary reality that's going on to where the names, specific names, are being pushed aside, and it's just referenced over and over again of King of Israel, King of Israel, King of Israel, King of Aram, King of Aram, King of Aram. Yeah, and, yeah. and so 
So we keyed in on that and we found other places where this works, where this was in play, both in the Bible and outside the Bible. Okay. And we make the argument that this animization is a literary mechanism. Was animization? To, uh, we're referencing somebody anonymously. We're no longer using their first name to know specifically, but we're, and in this instance, you refer to the king by king of Israel or king of Aram. You're using and, their title. And doesn't this happen too with Elijah too, the man of God? Yes, this yeah. happens in a lot of different contexts. And so we yeah. point that out in one chapter particularly, like this this actually happens a lot because many people would say, you see that? They're, no, they're not mentioning Ahab specifically. It's a later redaction from a later time period where Israel was weaker and it's being retroactively applied to Ahab because we hate him. We were like, no, 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 no. Interesting. We're not doing that. Rather, it's a literary mechanism to prop up the institution and the way yeah. that they did their business. Because what you'll find is that these Omride wars are critiquing the method of operation of the king who valued political expedience and political opportunity over obedience. Hello. So, so, so the king, so a prophet would come to the king and said, basically, you need to do this. This is what you need to do. God has spoken. This is how it's going to transpire. This is what you need to do. And inevitably, the king would say, okay, actually, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to seek a way of action or a course of action that's going to be better for me politically in the long run. Right. And that's how I'm going to make my decisions. And that's how I'm going to conduct my business. So by relegating specific people and propping up the institution, the writer is focusing in on the method of operation of that institution, and in this instance, the Almright family, and how they did their business. And it's a criticism. It's a criticism of putting politics, putting opportunity, personal opportunity, economic gain over obedience. And wow. that's the critique. So in, in this case, if there being makes sense then that outside sources outside of Israel would have looked at what he was doing and, and say they're politically successful, like that, that yes, outside voices precisely. would like what they're doing. Like he'd say, like, yes. yeah, Ahab is good. A yeah. Ahab, like, he, because he's politically he, savvy. Yes, he, he, he solidified everything. He stabilized everything because he knew how to play politics. Wow. And and that's essentially what the Assyrian records are saying. This guy was resourceful. He knew how to engage in coalitions. He knew how to engage in relationships with his neighbors for whatever purpose and whatever reason was necessary. And that's how he stabilized. And that's how he built his economic arsenal and his resource and, 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 and gained influence in the region. And the Bible is saying, but he compromised on obedience and he yeah. compromised on living in accordance with God's authoritative teaching mm. and that's the problem yeah wow that, so, that does that sound familiar like i feel like you could take out the names dave and you could say um insert well, anyone you know like we have this situation where you know there's this clear teaching about god's revelation what god's yeah. asking us to do in scripture in the issue of our time probably is related to human sexuality but you know let's not say anything now Let's not speak on that because it might be more to our advantage later, and that's how we can affect change. And we value political expediency, maybe even in uh, 
you know, denominations no longer enforcing the the rules and the guidelines and the biblical principles that have undergirded them for years and say, well, we're just going to push that. We're, we're not going to we're not going to value obedience in our situation because, you know, we have a we we, we were in the long game. We're doing something for political yeah. expediency. And I think you could make the same. I think you could make the same connection on a personal level, uh, a business level, uh, on a business level, on on a domestic level. Uh, um, um, you know, it's clear what I'm. Yeah, yeah like so, example. if you're, if you're a business owner, okay, yeah. you know how you should run your business as a Christian businessman or woman. You know how you should treat people. You know that there are certain kind of. Um, opportunities that you steer clear because of what they represent. There may be a moral connotation, et cetera, but man, think of the money that you could potentially get by forging that relationship and give to engaging and engaging that market share. Yes. And then I can then take that money and turn around and do something for the church. Like that's, that's, that's doing something that, you know, violates a very clear standard that God has laid upon your heart. And as and and you're just going to say, I know, I know, I know that, but look over here, and let's think about the possibilities, and let's begin yeah. to brainstorm, and let's begin to dream, and let's begin to envision what we could potentially look like down the road. I wow. believe that the historian is using those kings to make essentially that point: you 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 compromise disobedience for the sake of what could be down the road, and that's your problem. Yeah. So, okay. What I, I think I know, but what was particularly with Ahab, how was he disobedient? What did he not do right. that God was asking him to do? Yeah, we talk about that. So at the end of first Kings chapter 20, yeah, um, there is a, yeah, there's a confrontation. So what happens is, is, is Ahab's coming back from the battlefield and a prophet in a really interesting, fascinating kind of interchange, a prophet goes to another prophet and says, you know, hey, beat me up, beat the tar out of me. And and it's it's a funny interchange in some instances. And it's also Strike a frustrating one. Yeah, exactly. And he's like, and the first the first prophet's like, no, I'm not gonna do that. And he's like, shame on you. And then he gets another guy to, you know, just waylay him. But anyway, he, you know, he gets himself beat up and he he disguises himself. And um he uh uh meets Ahab on the road coming back from his military maneuvers. And he basically says, and this is kind of, this is, this is, and it's actually, we talked last time we met, we talked about harem. The actual same word is used in this episode as well. And it's essentially, um, you did not fulfill the stipulations of the, of the conflict leveled upon the King of Aram. You put him back in the political arena. You did not harem him. Yes. You did not harem him, but rather you renegotiated his treaty so that you could have economic opportunity in Damascus. Because of that, Ahab, your dynasty is is going to fall. Your dynasty is done. Mm. And so that at the end of First Kings chapter 20, we are told that there was a specific set of expectations, a harem attached to his interactions with the king of Aram that he violated. And he compromised for the sake of what could happen in Damascus. I'm not going to take this guy off the field. I'm not going to do away with him like the Lord apparently told me to do. But rather, I'm going to renegotiate our agreements so it's better for me. And I get a better return on my investment. And I'm going to go back into Damascus and set up economic opportunities that will then directly impact me positively. 
That's the issue with Ahab. That's what he did. And so 1 Kings 22 is the end result of Ahab uh, seeing, realizing the judgment on him. And then 2 Kings chapter 3 is judgment. It's a, it's a similar thing that happens to one of his descendants. In, it, in 22, it's interesting. Um, I'm just looking at my Bible here. I noted, like, I wasn't positive what was going on. This is just my, I, I read this passage once a year, right? And so, right. and here's what I put at the top here, David. I, first time I've called you David in a long time, Dave. Yeah. Um, so it's, I said, it's interesting here. Ahab isn't named, just called the king. Yes. Yes. I mean, like, that's it, the it's right, it's your idea. Yes. That's that's the animization that we're talking about. What that does is for a moment, it's taking Ahab and pushing him aside. And we're saying, OK, let's look at the kings in this family and, and how they did their business. That's what we're zeroing in on. We're zeroing in on how the kings in this family did their business. Mm -hmm. So, yes. Wow. This is good. Thank you. Oh, I'm so glad to hear this, Dave. This is a great this. Uh, thanks to you and Kyle for putting this together. I know we could go a little deeper in it, too. But I also want to just hit a little bit of what you cover in Silhouettes of Scripture, too. Right. I know may maybe some of your chapters, too. It looked like there's a chapter that um, is similar to this where you took talk about the kingless tradition. Um, that Drew wrote that one, actually. Oh, interesting. OK. Yeah. Okay. So I wrote I wrote the chapter on the birth narratives of Sargon, Cyrus and Moses. I wrote chapter, so that's chapter two. I wrote chapter four, which is Gilgamesh, Acha, and Rehoboam. I wrote uh, chapter six, a prototype, comparing the letter prayers of Sin, Edinam, and Hezekiah. Um, well, that's interesting. I, I heard your paper on that. Let, oh, and chapter three. Little... I did chapter three as well. Okay. Well, let's let's just talk about the, the birth narratives of Moses. What, mm -hmm. Moses, what's interesting about that? And so is that similar? Is it similar literary convention oh. being used? Oh, it's similar. Oh, it's crazy. Um, so the birth narrative of Moses is everybody knows that Moses was born in in, in a particular context of, of social oppression and he had to be hidden as a child. And then, you know, the text tells us that he gets too big. And so what do his parents do? They don't want to kill their child like they're supposed to. Well, they put him in a reed basket and they they seal that reed basket with pitch and they put him in a river. Um, and then he's adopted by another family, which happens to be the Egyptian royal family. And then he is raised for an extended period of time in the Egyptian royal household. Well, the legend of Sargon, and, and we're talking about Sargon I, which is a very famous um, Assyrian king. Um, he also has his birth narrative, and he has talked about how he was the child of an unsanctioned relationship. His mother appears to be some type of, some type of priestess. But she abandons her child as well, puts him in a reed basket that's sealed with pitch, and she and he sticks and she sticks him on a river, and that river takes Sargon away, and he gets adopted by another member of the family or uh, another another family who's a blue collar family, and he's raised in that family. He's given a trade as a manual laborer, and then all of a sudden God calls him out of that context. Wow, kind of like what Moses gets called out of that context for a specific purpose. So I go about that. And so the the birth narratives and Cyrus is similar. Cyrus is similar. It's not exactly the same. And I actually subordinate Cyrus's birth narrative. Cyrus the Great, the Persian king, is who I'm referring to. But so I go into that discussion and I begin to ask ourselves, I begin to ask the question, look, we can't pretend like these similarities don't exist. I mean, yeah. they're just, they're they're too similar. They're too significant. So the question becomes is what's going on. Yeah, sure. and um, that's that's the nature, and so and and there are many instances in that book where Drew and I 
look at passages or look at things that happen in scripture through a paradigm that looks at broad convergences and narrow convergences and differences and those types of things. So we're not just looking at the similarities, but we're also looking at the differences to try to figure out what the biblical writer is trying to tell us. Because here's here's what's going on. And this is one of the things that you get from a seminary education that you may not get necessarily from the pulpit or a Bible study. John Walton is very famous for saying that Israel was embedded in the ancient Near East. It was an embedded culture. They were a part of a cultural river. And so that cultural river ran over it, ran around it, ran underneath it. And so Israel was affected deeply by the ancient Near Eastern culture in which it operated, in which it functioned. And that involves their literary expressions. That involved their literary creations and those types of things. In other words, they composed similar types of literature and they composed literature in similar ways as their neighbors. And when you begin to read these texts outside the Bible, you begin to realize this. And when you come across passages like Sargon's birth narrative in uh, Exodus chapter two, you're kind of floored because you realize, oh my goodness, there's a lot of similarity here. But, and this is the key factor, but there's also a lot of differences. Yes. And you have to look at it from the standpoint of what's similar and then also what's different because together they come together and they give us an insight on what the Bible's intended meaning is. One of the things that I have found, the more I've done this and the more that I read this, is that the biblical writers have an interesting way to kind of take subtle jabs at the prevailing culture. Hmm. In many instances, they'll have puns. They'll make subtle allusions. They'll make references, sometimes direct references. Isaiah is very uh, well-known to do this. Isaiah will will make explicit direct references to Assyrian rituals in order to make fun of them Hmm. and to tell them how ludicrous they are. So this happens a lot in a lot of places. And when you're and when you're made aware of the other literatures outside of the Bible, you begin to figure out, okay, there is an instance here where the Bible, the biblical writer is making fun or critiquing or pointing the writers or pointing the reader's attention to something that they know in order to subvert that message, in order to recalibrate that message, in order to to tell the writer, you think it's this way. Yeah, or yeah. tell the reader, you think it's this way, it's actually this way. And yeah. here's the right way forward, and here's the right way to go through it. So, like for instance, that's, uh, that's I, what we're like getting at. A modern example of that is, um, you know, I come, I claim Chicago is where I'm from. You know, people in Mississippi, like they hear my voice after a while, they're like, you're not from around here, are you? Mm-hmm. I'm from Chicago. Well, well known in Chicago is the Chicago Cubs, my baseball team. And right. There's something very subversive about the Chicago Cubs. Um, Harry Carey, the famous um, a commentator, you know, t- Telecaster, whatever you call him, um, he would at the seventh inning stretch come out and re and lead in the singing of "Take Me Out to the Ball Game." Right. Mm-hmm. So when he would get there, and always toward the middle, um, for its root, 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 and normally people say the home, home team. team. Right. But what does Harry Carey say? Root, root, root for the cubbies, root, yeah. root, root for the cubbies, right? He, in that moment, changes the convention of the time and yeah. says, no, 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 we're not just rooting for a home team. We're right. rooting for the cubbies. So as if to say your own. team doesn't, as if to say your team doesn't matter, our team yeah. is the one that matters and we're better than you. 
who knew that we had a subversive rhetorician in uh, Harry Carey, but we do. Yes. Yeah, we did. <laughs> and Yeah. And so, you know, you got to ask yourself, okay, what's the connection here? Like, okay, you, yeah. we, 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 we talked about Ahab's House of Horrors, and that's a, a study of the history writing, and the method of history writing in order to engage a historical question that's oftentimes presented as a way to kind of undercut the veracity of, of, of the Bible and the authority of the Bible. What's so what's the connection between this and this? Yeah, yeah. Well, it's 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 another attempt to try to figure out what's going on in the literature. It's another attempt to try to figure out the intentions behind the literature, particularly how it's functioning in that Iron Age context. Yeah. Because remember, remember, inerrancy, in my opinion, has its way forward if the conversation includes those of conventions, those literary conventions. The way that they did their business, the way that the literature functioned, et cetera, et cetera. If we what can hang on to that and trying to do yes, what are right. these and yeah, this, yeah. yeah, and these are all these are all parts of the conversation because on a level, one of the functions of these texts is to bring into the reader's mind these popular conceptions about X, Y, or Z in order to clarify them in accordance with the biblical worldview. Okay, that's a part of what they're trying to do. That's a part of the function. That's a part of the attention. And for inerrancy to have a way forward, we have to have that conversation. It's not through philosophical concepts, modern philosophical constructs. That's not it. It's through the conversation of convention. The Bible is inerrant. It does not err. And as Dr. Vassar said, it is true in everything that it teaches. Yes. But that key phrase is in everything that it teaches. And in order to understand what it's teaching, we have to recognize the literary conventions, the literary intentions, the literary function of what's going on. And that is the connection here. That's Amen. the connection between both books. Yes. Oh, Dave, this is so exciting. I know, you know who I know is going to love and really enjoy this podcast? Who's that? My boys, Andy and oh, Titus. Oh, well, yeah. Yes. They're big. They are Dave Schreiner fans. Uh, well, and I, like, I think like, you know, there's, there's something interesting about this, like being able to think about, and I, I, I think, I think they like, but I th it, it's so interesting to be able to provide this kind of stuff. I hope that people can see, in particularly like the preachers or people who are teaching Sunday school classes, um, as you're listening to this, like you, we we stopped a few times and drew the kind of applicatory pieces to our times, but there's really something helpful for us to drive back this. It, it, it's so easy to kind of punt and say, no, 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 this just shows the Bible's wrong. Let's yeah. do the work. Like, let's get, the, yes. let's get yes. the work and see. Yeah, go ahead, Dave. No, that, I think that's good. I, I think, I think uh, in my experience, the questions of, the questions of, well, is the Bible true? Is it getting it right? They are radically minimized, if not done away with, if we're willing to do the hard work which involves trying to understand the intentions of the text. What is it trying to communicate, particularly in that ancient context? Because what that does is that forces us to get out of our comfort zone, get out of what we assume to be true, and to actually look at the literature through the conventions and through the canons of its day. And when we find that out, we realize, oh, what I actually thought was going on was not actually the case. And because I'm now armed with this new information, that thing that I thought was a big issue not really that big of an issue anymore. 
Mm-hmm. And and so and so, yeah, there's there's a lot of truth to the thing that there's a lot of truth to the statement of don't just give up, be willing to do the work. And and that's a good seminary education will teach you how to do this. Yes. And then you can then model that behind the pulpit, because mm-hmm. I tell you what, you know, this conversation about Sargon's birth narrative, it's a part of the Exodus narrative. Yeah, sure. And when you look behind the plain words plagues and you look behind the plagues and everybody says oh you know it's it's targeting elements of the egyptian pantheon and yeah that's that's true that's but it's a part of a larger anti-imperial rhetoric when you understand the exodus narrative against its historical context in the in new kingdom egypt you realize that egypt represents the imperial all imperial powers Mm. and god is there to take the things that define those imperial powers flip them on their flip them on its head and basically say i'm bigger than you don't Amen. think that you can control my people. Wow. And when the time is right, I'm going to swoop in and I, I'm going to save them with such a mighty hand that will absolutely cripple you and take you off the table. That's mm-hmm. what the Exodus narrative is about on a deeper level. And when you begin to look at it in the context of Egyptian iconography and the historical context and the, and, and, and the Egyptian literature of that time period, you begin to realize that there's way, way more to this than just God taking his people out of a context of oppression. It's a very complicated and sophisticated commentary. Yes, that is so great. And and really in your books are a helpful guide to that. So if you're wanting to learn more about like what Dave's talking about here, check out these two books. We'll have links to them in the show notes. Or if you want to go even further than that, you could audit one of his classes at WBS. We, I know we just started one that's covering these areas you could, yep. I mean, if you want to pay us, we'll let you get in, even though the class has already started. It's two weeks on. I think it'll probably be a month in by the time this podcast comes out. But you could you could check that out and you could look back at his lectures on that yeah. to- on this topic. Like he's teaching a class uh, on um, what's that class called? Uh, ancient Israel's history in the context of the ancient world. So we're looking at ancient Israel against these historical categories. And one of the things that we're doing, one of the things that we've done, because by the time this comes out, we'll have done this, is we looked at. We, we contextualized the Exodus event against New Kingdom Egypt, uh, against the late Bronze Age, and we began to understand the significance of this event in more than just God saving his people. Yes, yeah. I mean, that's true. But there's way, there's so many more layers to this and who Egypt represents, et cetera, et cetera, and, 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 and those types of things. So it was a good study. It was a fascinating study. And I don't know. We'll see what the court. We'll see, we'll see what the students say in the course evaluations right. when it comes out. Right. And I'll meet with you at the end of the semester on that. Okay. Yes. Yes. So yeah, exactly. Let, yeah. let me talk. To, I always ask a more to the story question. I've never done this before, but I'm going to tell you what I want you to talk about with your more to the story. Like okay. I always say, is there more to the story? Tell yeah. us about your love for the national parks and the type of things that <laughs> your family does within a yeah. few minutes. Yeah, no, we, we, we like them. We, we enjoy them. Um, we've been to several, we particularly like the ones out the West, out West. Um, and we've gotten to them through a variety of ways. We've gotten to them, uh, driving. So it was last year where we rented a car and drove all the way. We ended up at white sands in the deserts of New Mexico, which was amazing. Um, that was awesome. And we we looped around and saw the Guadalupe Mountains and um, Carlsbad Caverns and and came back through. So we've driven to some of them out west. We've we've we actually do a lot with flying into Denver and then we use Denver as a hub and we drive up to Yellowstone, Grand Tetons, or we go over to Utah. And Denver's a good hub for that. You you, you know sometimes you have to drive like seven or eight hours, but it, it's okay. Um, 
And you but also yes, got to one. Enjoy- you got to Glacier. Tell us how you got to Glacier. What'd you do there? Oh, we, yeah, we uh, my my wife and I celebrated our anniversary this past year. So we we drove up to Chicago and then took an Amtrak, a thirty hour Amtrak train, which was actually quite pleasant, um, all, all the way out to um, Whitefish, Mont- uh, Whitefish, Montana, and then we went up to Glacier, and then we actually went into Canada as well and visited Banff up up Banff National Park up in there. But no, we enjoy it. We we enjoy using the opportunity to bond as a family, but also to show our kids the beauty of God's creation. And 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 uh we do believe that it's important for us as stewards, uh as Christian yeah. stewards to to do what we can to take care of the environment, not abuse the environment. Um, because there are certain elements, uh there are certain places that still kind of manifest the beauty of our creator in a ways in ways that you just don't see in other places and the national yeah. parks for all that they are, they are at least opportunities to, to encounter the creative, uh, the creator in ways that you can't get in other places and yeah. um, seeing those landscapes and seeing those valleys and seeing the animal life um, makes not only makes good memories and great pictures, but it does deepen your appreciation for the creative activity of God. Awesome. Yeah. And um, anyways, I, I, you've been a good advisor to our family as we've taken on the national parks lately. Dave, thanks so much for taking the time to come on the podcast. I've loved this conversation and I know it's going to help other people too. I appreciate it. Andy. Thanks for having me on.